Good morning and welcome to each one of you. Grateful to be gathered here together this morning to worship our risen Lord. This morning I want to look at a psalm, and before I do that, I think it's important to understand the setting surrounding the writing of the psalm. What was going on in the psalmist's life when he wrote this? The psalm I'm going to be looking at this morning is a psalm of David. And let me give you a really quick overview of his young life. At, at this point in his life, commentators believe that he was about 20 years old. And so as a young teen, David was such a talented musician that he was sent to the palace to play for King Saul. And soon after that, also as a teenager, in an act of faith, David had accepted the challenge of the Philistine giant, Goliath of Gath, and he had killed him in battle. As a result, David was given great wealth and honor. The king gave David his daughter and had him serve in the palace. Uh, in 1 Samuel, we're told he wouldn't allow him to, to go home to his father anymore. David's best friend was the king's son, Jonathan. And Saul made, also made David a commander of a thousand men in the military. 1 Samuel 18 says all the people and Saul's officers approved of this appointment of David to be over a thousand men. David was so successful as a military commander that the people of Israel loved him. And the women danced in the streets and sang about his victories. This was an exciting time in David's life, and things were going really well for him. It would have been very easy for David to become arrogant, big-headed, and self-sufficient. Then Saul became jealous of David, and everything changed radically changed. Saul tried repeatedly to kill him. Um, I'll just <laughs> briefly mention, uh, he, he tried to kill him in, in different ways. From indirect, he'd, he'd send him out on mission impossible in enemy territory thinking, ah, the Philistines will take care of him and then I won't have to. David comes back victorious. He tried direct ways. I'm going to pin him to the wall with my javelin. And he tried that several times and missed. David went from a celebrated military hero to a fugitive running for his life. In desperation, David fled to Gath, the city that Goliath was from. And remember, this is just a couple years after he had killed Goliath. He goes to Gath, and he's carrying Goliath's sword. You'll remember he stopped off and got Goliath's sword from the priest. He got some bread, and he got the only weapon they had there was Goliath's sword that had been stored there. And David said at that time that, give it to me, there is none like it. So apparently, it was recognizable. Can you imagine? Put yourself in David's shoes. You're running for your life, 
and you go to the city of the giant you killed carrying his sword, that's, there's none like it, it's recognizable, the man's desperate to get away from Saul. He'll try anything. Going to jump to uh, 1 Samuel 21 and uh, read from verse 10, a couple of verses into uh, chapter 22. 1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down in his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him there. And everyone was, who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, and there were about 400 men with him where we'll stop. F.B. Mayer said that the cave of Adullam is described as a dark vault, the entrance of which is a low window in the perpendicular face of a cliff. Its position made it possible for him to cross over from one country to the other as occasion required. This cave is located in a it was in a, in a wild, rugged area, very mountainous, and David was familiar with the Judean wilderness from being a shepherd there. So it was natural for him to go to the area that he knew well, was comfortable in. It is believed that David probably wrote Psalm 34 in the cave of Adullam. I'm going to be turning to Psalm 34. <clears throat> I'm going to be, I want to notice several things there. First, you'll, you'll notice that several times David contrasts the righteous and the wicked. David had watched Saul disobey God and be rejected by God as king of Israel. Saul was tormented by evil spirits and he was threatened by David's success and he slowly descended into madness. Well, notice, I'm not going to point them out now, but you'll, you'll, as we read Psalm 34, you'll see a couple things that uh, lead historians to believe that it, he was, it was written in, um, in the cave of Adullam because you'll notice he talks about young lions roaring, um, things you would have heard in the wilderness. He talks about breaking bones. Well, if you have to climb a perpendicular base of a cliff to get to the opening of where you live, you would think about breaking bones, just things like that. But I want to notice in Psalm 34, four necessary elements in my relationship with God. 
Four necessary elements in my relationship with God. Let's read uh, Psalm 34. I forgot. I need to flip there. I'm going to read the first three verses and pause. Just, um, and notice that. Psalm 34, verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I think the first necessary element in my relationship with God is to bless the Lord. It's it's to, to bless actually means, I was surprised, to kneel. It is literally to kneel. And... By implication, it's to praise, it's adoration, and submission. It's recognition of what God has done for me. It's being grateful. A grateful, a thankful heart, blessing the Lord is is necessary in my relationship with God. And not sometimes when things go right, but all the time. To think about where David was when he's writing this. I believe he's, he's looking back at when he, was in, uh, when he was in Gath, and he was taken captive there for a short time. We don't know how long, but the Philistines took him captive. And if you want to look later at Psalm 56, it's believed he wrote Psalm 56 while he was in captivity in Gath. And there he said, whenever I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Did David have reason to be afraid? He most certainly did have reason to be afraid. He feared for his life and fled one country to another, and then again is fearing for his life. He knew God had promised him he would be the king of Israel. He was anointed king of Israel. David had to repeatedly uh, place his trust in the Lord, but He was blessing the Lord in a dark cave in the wilderness at all times. I think the next next phrase defines blessing the Lord. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Read verses uh, 4 through 8. The second thing I think that is necessary in my relationship with God is seeking the Lord. Verses 4 to 8. I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. In verse 4, he says he sought the Lord, he heard him, delivered him from all his fears. Fears from his horrors, from the things that he dreaded. Those fears can be known fears, which in David's case, they, he was running for his life. They can be fear of the unknown. But the things that I dread, God delivered him. Verse 5, the, uh, 
word radiant. They looked to him and were radiant. That word is used elsewhere to describe the joyful expression on a mother's face when she's welcoming her children home. I wish I had a picture here this morning to put up on the screen. There's a picture Ann and I really like that was taken of Edna, taken of Ann's mom as we were coming home. When, when they lived in, uh, in Sioux Lookout and we came up to visit them and a number of family members were riding together. And as we got there, we parked in front of the house and were walking in. And they came and opened the door. And we snapped a picture of them in the door before we got there. And uh, I think her face would describe, would, would fit the radiant very well. <clears throat> so the joyful expression on a mother's face when she's welcoming her, welcoming her children home so those who look to the Lord will be. The Lord hears and answers. Verse 6 is David's testimony. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him. Now when the Philistines in Gath seized David, he cried out to him. He cried out to the Lord for help, and he recognized that it was God who saved him. You know, it could have. It would have been easy in David's situation to say, boy, it's a good thing I'm a quick thinker. I thought real fast, and I started scratching on the gateposts and drooling, and they let me go. Who gets the credit? David does. But David had cried out to God. He had sought God and cried out to him for help. And so rather than saying, good thing I'm a quick thinker, he said, the Lord delivered me. I cried out and the Lord delivered him. The Lord gave him the idea. He saw the Lord at work in his life. I believe it's because David had a habit, whatever happened, of looking to the Lord. And then he recognized God's work in his life. He gave God credit. And I had to ask myself, what's my habit? I want my habit to be to seek the Lord, whatever my situation is. Ask for his help, then recognize what he did for me. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and deliver them. Delivers them. I had to think of uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. It's a Familiar passage, I'm going to turn there quickly. It's where uh, Elisha is in the city and the, the Syrians come and surround the city and they want to take him captive. And I'll just read verses 15 to 17. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They were surrounded by God's army. I wonder if verse 7 is what caused Elisha several hundred years later to ask God to open his servant's eyes. I don't know. It's something I had to, had to wonder about. But here's, 
He opened his servant's eyes to, God opened his servant's eyes to see the invisible reality. What was there that he couldn't see? Verses 7 and 8 are also a, a chorus song that I think most of you know. I've asked Walter if he would, uh, if he would lead that for us. Thank you, Walter. <clears throat> oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's an invitation to experience God yourself. Someone can tell me what God is like, but I need to experience the relationship with God. Taste and see, as God is good. Taste doesn't imply, this is a quote by Warren Wearsby, taste doesn't imply a sip or a nibble, but a feeding on God through his word and experiencing all that he has for us. I think of 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3 in connection with that. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So the second necessary element in my relationship with God is seeking the Lord. The third we find in verses 9 to 16, and that is fearing, fear the Lord. Starting in verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for there is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Verse 9 tells us that there is no want to those who fear him. They lack no good thing. It's not, Derek Kidner said, it's not an empty promise of affluence but assurance of his responsible care. The person who fears the Lord doesn't have to fear anything else. The fear of the Lord drives out other fears. That's not to say we'll never face fear. I believe we will. But we, we put the Lord first. We fear Him before anything else. There are... <clears throat> Verses 13 and 14, I think there are three things here that describe the fear of the Lord. Those three things, the first one is to keep your tongue from evil. That's a tough one. I think most of us will struggle with that one. Uh, as it, James says, the tongue is a world of iniquity. The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it's so hard for us to control a poem, Power of Words. A careless word may kindle strife. A cruel word may wreck a life. A bitter word may hate instill. A brutal word may smite and kill. A gracious word may smooth the way. A joyous word may light the day. A timely word may lessen stress. A loving word may heal and bless. 
Psalm 141 and verse 3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I need God's help to keep from sinning with my mouth. I need God's help in guarding my lips. That's the first step in the fear of the Lord. I'm to keep my tongue from evil. Second, I'm to turn away from evil and do good. You see that in verse 14. Not just keeping from evil, but actively doing good. It's both turning away from evil, departing from it, but actively doing what's right and good. And third, also in in verse 14, seek peace and pursue it. And to seek it, search for it. And then to pursue. When I find peace, then pursue it. (laughs) Go after peace. Do you ever have to pursue peace? Or does peace always come easy? (laughs) Some of you are smiling. Peace doesn't always come easy. Sometimes it takes a lot of work, and sometimes you may say, boy, is it worth it? I don't know. This has taken a lot of effort. I had to think of uh, when I was a teenager, Harold Byler on the farm right here, just across the field, and he had a beagle. Her name was Dee Dee, and we liked to hunt behind this beagle. She was an excellent rabbit hunter. Typical beagle, very friendly. Also typical in that you put her, get her out there and on the trail. I don't know if most beagles don't listen well, but this one didn't. It was typical in that she just kept on going. She didn't want to come back. She wanted to spend her whole life hunting. Well, we'd get her out, and if, if the rabbit didn't circle around to us right away, we lost interest pretty quick. We wanted action. And Dee Dee would just keep going. We'd start out behind the farm there. She'd end up crossing the tracks and going back on a farm we weren't allowed to go on. She'd go on back in Herman and Patty's Woods. She'd go all over the place where she wasn't supposed to be. The only way we knew where she was is we could hear her. She'd stay out for a couple days. Once I was over at, at Harold's house three days after we had been rabbit hunting, and he said he hadn't seen Dee Dee since. And he said, come here, let's go out back. And we got away from 28 and went behind the farm buildings and listened. And sure enough, you could hear her bawling back there on the other side of the of the railroad tracks. She was still pursuing the rabbits. When she came back, she would be thin. She hadn't eaten properly. She would be hungry, limping. She had thorns in her paws. She'd have scratches on her face and burrs in her coat. But Dee Dee didn't let anything stop her from pursuing the rabbit. She was determined. I think that's a picture of what You and I, how you and I should pursue peace. It's going to be hard. It might be painful. We'll get some wounds, but it's worth it. And part of fearing the Lord is to pursue peace with the people around me at whatever that costs. Now, the verses, uh, those verses lead us, verses 13 and 14 lead us to an amazing truth in verse 15. The eyes of the Lord 
are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His face is turned toward them. He is aware of what's going on. God is turned toward you, and his ear is open toward their cry. It's like to think of a, a mother with a newborn. If, if you have a, a little baby, you ever notice how a mom can be out here in this room or anywhere else and in a crowd, and their ear is tuned back there to the nursery. They hear it immediately. When that baby's crying, they hear it, and they're going. They're listening for it, for that sound. That's the picture I get of God is, it has his ear tuned to those who fear him, to those who live a, a righteous life. Again, fearing the Lord will, I will keep my tongue from evil, depart from evil and do good, seek peace, and pursue it. <clears throat> the fourth necessary element in my relationship with God is trust. Trust in the Lord. I'm going to read 17 through 22. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. This footnote in my Bible here says contrite means crushed. Those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. But the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. No, God doesn't promise to rescue his people from, he doesn't promise to rescue them from trouble. He promises to rescue them out of trouble. In other words, we will have trouble. God doesn't promise us a life, a life of ease. There's a big difference between being rescued from trouble and being rescued out of trouble. Experiencing trouble, but being rescued or delivered in that. David Ackerman told this story. For two years, scientists sequestered themselves in an artificial environment called Biosphere 2. Inside their self-sustaining community, the Biospherians created a number of mini-environments, including a desert, a rainforest, and ocean. Nearly every weather condition could be simulated except one, and that was wind. Over time, the effect of their windless environment became apparent. A number of acacia trees bent over and snapped. Without the stress of wind to strengthen the wood, the trunks grew weak and could not hold up their own weight. End of quote. I think it's good for us to remember that whatever God allows in our lives is for our good. Even if it's not something I enjoy, even if it's something painful, God has good intentions toward us. God loves us and he knows what's best for us and everything that he allows before my good. Sometimes we need the, as the acacia trees needed the strengthening of the wind. Maybe you and I need the strengthening of adversity. So even whatever God allows is for a good, even hardship. 
David is speaking in verse 17, talking about how the Lord delivers them. David is speaking from experience. Think back to verse 6. Looking back at that, the, the godly person's suffering may be extreme, but verse 18 tells us that the Lord is near. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. God is with them and ultimately rescues them. And whatever happens, we know that God is in control. I'm comforted by the fact that the Lord is near. It's a fact. He's there. I can turn to Him any time. Someone is described as being brokenhearted and crushed in spirit as internal suffering. People may not be able to see that, but it's painful. Just the same as outer suffering is. But know that the Lord is near. As David did, I can call out to him and receive help. Verse 20. He guards all his bone, not bones, not one of them is broken. The Apostle John quotes this verse in John 16:36, and he's speaking about Jesus' crucifixion. And this was prophesied about Jesus. None of them are broken. And as Dave mentioned, we will be remembering, focusing on that this evening. This psalm is actually an acrostic. And each, each, of the, uh, each verse starts with a, a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order. The acrostic ends at verse 21, and verse 22 stands out because it's added on. After the, after the uh, it's, there's no corresponding letter there, and it's added on, summing up what has been said in the rest of the psalm. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. I think of Romans 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And later on in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That is why we're gathering this evening. That's what we're gathering to remember and celebrate, that there is no condemnation toward those who are in Christ Jesus. God paid a price I can't imagine to obtain what I can only begin to fathom. Will I choose as David did to bless God at all times, to seek Him ongoing, to fear Him, respect Him, and to trust Him? These four things, I think, are necessary elements in my relationship with God. Would you stand, please? <clears throat> Let's pray.
Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that we can come to you as David did. Lord, may we make a, a habit of turning to you. May we be aware of you, ongoing, constantly, and whatever we're doing as we go about our work this week, may we be aware of your presence, of our responsibility to you, aware of what you've done for us, looking for ways to honor you. May we repeatedly turn to you, place our trust in you this week so that you will be lifted up and exalted in our lives. We ask in the name of Jesus.